Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. Earlier this past year, I don't know if you're aware of this, Japan experienced two earthquakes. First in February and then in March. Both earthquakes, if you weren't aware of this, thankfully did not result in too much damage or loss of life. There was nothing in those two earthquakes like the devastation and tragedy caused more than a decade earlier on March 11th, 2011, when you might remember a magnitude 9.0 earthquake and tsunami left 29,000 people dead or missing on Japan's northeastern shore. Now, if you remember that earthquake and tsunami at all in 2011, many more lives and homes could have been lost had it not been for the hundreds of so-called tsunami stones, some more than six centuries old, that dotted the coast of Japan. Crafted and left by generations past, these stone tablets, all of them have but one message carved onto their face. They read, do not build your homes below this point. Now, the interesting thing is, is in modern Japan in 2011, and still today, in modern Japan, but at that time in 2011, there were many who felt that, they felt assured that because of modern technology and higher seawalls, they could protect any vulnerable areas, and so they chose to ignore or forget these ancient silent warnings of the past. And it was a decision that they soon came to lament and regret when the waves of the 2011 tsunami elevated to new, previously unrecorded heights and erased hundreds of miles of the Japanese coast. Now, at the same time in 2011, there were other smaller, more remote villages in Japan that did heed the wisdom and warning of their ancestors and built their houses, their households, on higher ground. And in one case, in one village, all the homes in a particular village in Japan stayed safely out of the reach of the lethal waves of the tsunami by only 300 feet. It's stories like these that remind us that messages from the past serve to instruct those of us living in the present, that those who forget to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And this is, I think, a good helpful framework for our reading of these seven letters to the churches in the book of Revelation. But instead of messages, as we know, we've been in this series now for several weeks, instead of messages from unknown ancestors, we have correspondence from Jesus. Letters dictated by Christ through the Apostle John to seven local congregations in the first century AD. Messages that were intended not only for them, but for every generation of the church to warn us to correct us, and in the case of today's particular letter, to encourage and reassure us, especially, especially when we find ourselves most vulnerable, especially when we find ourselves lacking strength in this journey of faith. With that, keep your eyes on the screen or in your Bible, and let's hear this letter in Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 7. It reads, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength. 
yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus, as we just heard, writes a letter to the church in Philadelphia. Now, most of us think of Philadelphia as a city on the East Coast, part of the great state of Pennsylvania. Anyone from Pennsylvania here? Nobody. All right. Well, the great state of Pennsylvania isn't well represented today. We think of Philadelphia, we think of the spiritual heart of the American Revolution, right? The home of the Liberty Bell and Independence Hall. We think of Philadelphia as the place you want to go to get a proper and delicious cheesesteak. But of course, that's not the same city on the address label of this letter being sent by Jesus. No, this letter is postmarked to the original Philadelphia, the OG Philadelphia, a city founded long ago in the province of Asia Minor. Now, as I'm talking about this city, you might recall that the name Philadelphia means brotherly love. We all remember that, right? Well, it's interesting because the original city of Philadelphia, founded to Hellenize, to bring Greek culture and thought to that part of the known world, it was so named Philadelphia in reference to an interesting piece of ancient history. You see, in 172 BC, when Eumenes, the king of Pergamum, was returning from a visit to Rome and did not make it back, a false rumor arose that King Eumenes had been assassinated. And as a result, Eumenes' brother, Attalus II, assumed the throne. When, however, Eumenes returned, instead of demanding back the crown, he invited his brother Attalus to reign with him as co-regent. A few years later, in 167 BC, when the Romans pressured Attalus to betray his brother Eumenes and forcefully take the crown for himself, Attalus repeatedly refused. And so Attalus gained the nickname Philadelphia, Philadelphus. And later when the city of Philadelphia was established, it was so named as a memorial to the well-known love between these two brothers. Nicknamed the doorway or gateway to the east because it occupied a key position on a trade route that ran eastward from Rome, ancient Philadelphia was built on the ridge of a highly active volcanic area. Now the upside of this being, thanks to the ash from these volcanoes, the city possessed very fertile soil, particularly for growing grapes. When we think of ancient Philadelphia, we might think of it as the Napa Valley of Asia Minor. But the downside, as we might imagine, the downside of being built on a range of active volcanoes was the city often experienced frequent dangerous tremors. What we are very familiar with here in California, earthquakes. In fact, the ancient historian Strabo once called Philadelphia a city full of earthquakes. In 17 AD, a massive earthquake toppled the city. 
There were so many aftershocks from that one earthquake that most of the population ended up living outside of the city for some time in tents. After the earthquake of AD 17 AD, excuse me, the emperor of Rome removed Philly's obligation to pay tribute to the empire for five years. For five years so that, again, the citizens could recover economically and rebuild the city. And out of gratitude, as much as, if you read history, a Faustian obligation, Philadelphia renamed itself Neo-Caesarea, which means new or young Caesar, and became yet another in a string of cities consecrated to the worship of both the emperor and the empire of Rome. And it's in the midst of all that seismic activity, right? It's in the throes of all that physical instability and spiritual insecurity in that city that there was a little church, a small but budding extension of the body of Christ. And it's to that church residing in that city, the city of brotherly love, that Jesus writes, I know your deeds. And as we've discovered now reading through these letters, Jesus always begins here. Jesus always begins with this, the fruit the works of each community of faith, the witness of their abiding in the vine, in him, by our fruit, not our professions of belief, by our fruit, rooted in the grace, love, and truth of the gospel, the word and the spirit, by our fruit, Jesus will know us. The tree is known by its fruits, Christ previously taught us, and in this case, the church in Philadelphia is commended for three things. First, for keeping the word of Christ. In other words, for following Jesus. For not just talking the talk, but walking the walk. Second, they are commended for not denying the name of Christ. Translation, they worshiped Jesus alone. They didn't add Jesus to something else. They didn't short shrift Jesus. Jesus was the only one to whom they gave worship. They existed, they participated, but the person who they gave their devotion, loyalty, and allegiance was to Christ alone. And third, they kept Christ's command to endure patiently. In fact, the Greek word that's translated in our English Bibles as endure could also be translated as wait. Wait patiently or stay patiently. And this really, I think these other ver translation options help to flesh out the meaning of Jesus' third affirmation. That when he says they kept Christ's command to endure, to wait, or to stay patiently, what that means is the Philadelphian Christians were not trying to control their lives, but instead were waiting upon Christ. They were staying in the presence of Jesus, and in so doing, trusting that Christ would act and give them whatever they needed, whatever they needed to carry on and move forward. Now, if we're paying close attention collectively, these commendations by Jesus reveal that things were not easy for the Christians in Philadelphia. Clearly, based upon what Jesus affirms, the church was facing constant pressure, opposition, repeated persecution. And then added to all this is Christ's acknowledgement in verse 8 that the church in Philadelphia is a community with little strength or power. Little strength or power. And when Jesus says this, I know that you have little strength or power, this is not a criticism. No, if we read carefully, this is one of the few letters in this collection of seven in which Jesus has no word of rebuke or correction. 
It's like the letter we read previously to the church in Smyrna, where Christ only has words of unqualified praise and encouragement for these Christians in Philadelphia. Jesus isn't critiquing here. When Christ speaks of them having little strength, we know that he can't be referring to a lack of spiritual power, because in the same breath, Jesus praises this community for their uncompromising faithfulness and steadfastness. No, this isn't a rebuke. It's an acknowledgement. It's an acknowledgement of the reality of the church in Philadelphia's vulnerability. Her lack of earthly or worldly power. In other words, this is not a community that's boastful about what a great church they are. They're not finding their strength in their numbers. They're not leveraging some kind of influence in the wider city. No, seemingly this is a community that's small in number. It's economically poor and politically without any representation or power. This is a church that's struggling to even make a footprint, let alone a massive impact in the city. And if we pay close attention and read between the lines, of the repeated door imagery in this letter, which I'll talk about later. These are Christians who are being shut out and denied access, placed on the outside looking in. They're being turned into social outcasts. More pointedly, the inference you may have caught it by Jesus appears to be that the doors of worship and fellowship have been closed to them as the Jews in Philadelphia have banned all Christians from participating in the local synagogue. And yet, despite all of this, every door being closed to them, the church in Philadelphia remained a faithful and unwavering outpost, an embassy of the kingdom of heaven, a refuge for those seeking life and salvation in Christ. Can any of us relate this morning to the church in Philadelphia? Do we come here today perceiving we have little strength or power? Do you find yourself in a place of vulnerability today? Have we recently become aware, become aware of our weakness, our weakness within ourselves, our weakness perhaps in our marriages, a weakness perhaps in our families, a weakness in maybe in other relationships we have? Or does the very mention, maybe even bringing this up, the very mention of vulnerability or powerlessness make us defiantly angry and resentful or possibly sick to our stomachs with embarrassment? Vulnerability, powerlessness, little strength, lacking strength, this is, this is not stuff that we talk about, let alone admit, because we live in a world driven by success. We live in a world driven by success. Ours is a society that rewards strength and despises weakness, that looks down on being powerless, acknowledging our weakness and our powerlessness is equated with inadequacy. And admitting our inadequacy any inadequacy, both individually and collectively, is just not okay. It's not acceptable. Instead, we're told to claim and take back our power. We're taught to toughen up, put our stake in the ground, and strengthen ourselves. What's your problem? Stop your whining. 
You are what you do. You are what you become. Take what's yours to take. Be who you were called to be. Don't blame other people. Don't play the victim. If you're not strong, if you're not successful, if you're not powerful, if you're weak, it's your own fault. We're rewarded. We're labeled as successful for building and maintaining our own brand, our reputation, our worth. And some of us have formed our entire lives on this. And if for some reason our reputation is damaged, if for some reason our worth, what we've built, what we've constructed, whatever it is, if that is lost, we are lost. Who are we? Got some people in this room. Some people can't wait to retire. I don't know, retirement's not a biblical concept, but from a worldly standpoint, some of us just can't wait to retire. But some of us who are retired are here to tell others of us who can't wait to retire, it ain't all it's cracked up to be. Who are you when you're not the job? Who are you when you don't have that title? Who are you when you're not making money anymore? When you're just trying to live on what you've made? We live in a world that says you're successful by what you do, by what you accumulate, by what others say about you. And yet, despite all this conditioning, despite our repeated denials about weakness and powerlessness and inadequacy, despite all this, that nagging sense of our weakness of our powerlessness, of our inadequacy lingers, doesn't it, right? It refuses to go away. It's like there haunting us in the back of our minds. It's there when we stop and think about it. We can feel inadequate physically because our body isn't working the way it's supposed to be. Because we are wrestling with some kind of ongoing sickness or disease. We can be haunted by a growing sense of our powerlessness, either in our youth. For those who are here who are young, we feel powerlessness because we're just too young to yet accomplish anything. Or we can be haunted by a growing sense of our powerlessness if we find ourselves to be too old, believing we have little left to meaningfully contribute. We might be tormented today by financial insecurity struggling to make ends meet, or so frustrated that we don't have as much as the people around us. Or maybe we're plagued by insecurity and weakness socially. You know, not perceiving how we fit in with everyone else. Not able to find where we can make lasting connections with others and thus believing something's wrong with us. What's wrong with me? And this sense of our weakness, this nagging sense of our powerlessness and our inadequacy, it's not just an individual thing. It's communal and corporate too. I mean, after all, it's people who form a community, right? It's people who make a company, people who bring together a fellowship. And insecure people breed insecure communities. Those who reflect, collectively refuse to acknowledge their weakness their vulnerability, their lack of strength, those who don't want to face that form associations and alliances aimed at convincing themselves and others, oh, that they do indeed have power and they are strong. Welcome to today's political process. Welcome to the reason why 
we will never get anything done politically. Because we are not looking to work together. We are not willing to admit our weakness and our inadequacy and our powerlessness. No, instead, we are going to one-up each other. We're going to get our pound of flesh. We may lose, oh, but we're coming for you. We're going to win. And then when we win, we're going to make you pay. Until eventually you make us pay. And on and on and on it goes. Even Christians, dare I say it, even Christians can form or shape churches driven more by wanting to be perceived as healthier, larger, more influential than they actually are. Beloved, no matter how much economic power, no matter how much cultural appeal, no matter how much political influence may be desirable to us, is gaining the whole world worth more than the exchange of our souls? Does being successful profit us more than being faithful in Christ? Are we willing to be weak? Are we willing to admit we are powerless? Are we willing to confess our inadequacy? Because here it is, and you're not going to like it. No one ever does. Denying our weakness, refusing to face our powerlessness, rejecting any suggestion of our inadequacy, either personally or corporately as human beings, this is what moves us away from Jesus rather than towards Christ. The invitation and assurance of the gospel is realized. It's received only as we confront our powerlessness. Only as we admit our weakness. Only as together we confess our inadequacy and seek and look to Christ alone. Part of the message Jesus is giving to the church in Philadelphia and by extension to us is the lack of our strength. The absence of any sense of power, our power, is not a bad place to be. It's exactly the right place to be. Because this is where we become fully open and completely available to the power and strength of Christ. Once again, Jesus is not rebuking this church for having little strength or power. Jesus acknowledges the reality of their weakness and powerlessness in order to remind them and assure them that their identity, their security, their destiny are, do not depend upon themselves, does not depend upon their own power and strength. The identity the security, the destiny of the church in Philadelphia depends solely on the power and strength of Christ. Christ who is at both at work within and through them. And beloved, so it is for us. So it is for us. The deep, profound truth of the gospel that for we who follow Jesus, no matter how vulnerable or weak or inadequate we recognize we are, we need never believe or say that we are forgotten or forsaken by God. For our God in Christ gives power to the weak. And to those who have no might, he increases strength. For those who wait upon the Lord, their strength shall be found and renewed. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. 
They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. You might recognize these beloved words from the prophet Isaiah. But let's look here as Jesus describes the power, his power, that he offers to us as well as the promises backed by his power. You might have caught it. Jesus introduces himself to the church in Philadelphia by referring to himself as the one who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. In the ancient world, keys and locks were a symbol of power. Someone who was in charge, when you watch maybe historical films, you'll catch this. Someone who was in charge back in the day often visibly wore a key around their neck or around their shoulder as a symbol of their authority to grant or limit access to others. Jesus, in this case, has the key of David. The key of David is the means of access not to David's earthly kingdom, but the kingdom that the Lord promised to bring through the line of David, his kingdom, the kingdom of God. All the Psalms, many of which were written by David, and all the prophets who came after David invoke this imagery of the key master in their anticipation of the arrival of the Messiah. The one whom they described as coming with total and absolute power over all people, over all the world, opening the door to God's promised redemption and renewal of all creation. And that long-awaited Messiah was and is Jesus Christ. The same Jesus who professed, do you remember, not only to have the keys of the kingdom, but to himself be the very door, the narrow gate to our salvation. In the same way, think about it, that the city of Philadelphia controlled access to eastern trade routes in Asia Minor, Christ presents himself here as the only way to come to the Father. The truth and the life for which we have always hoped and longed for. And Jesus goes on to declare, it's fabulous, Jesus goes on to declare what he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. That he has placed before us an open door that no one can shut. Christ's words of assurance here echo. They echo the long-standing promises of God to his people. Remember, remember, to a people who watched their homeland fall, to a people who found themselves taken captive and on their way to exile, to a people who were about to be thrown into the raging fires of an oven or the seeming slaughter of a lion's den, God promised he alone could and would open and shut the doors of our salvation, the means to carry us through to the other side. And one day, coming down in the person of Jesus Christ, living among us, dying for us all on the cross, and then through the empty tomb of the resurrection, God opened once and for all, always and forever, the greatest door that no human being has or ever will be able to open or close, the doorway beyond death to everlasting life. God opened the door the doorway for his own spirit to come and for the body of Christ to rise anew through the church to fill our hearts and minds together and lead us home 
to lead us into the kind of life we were meant to live, to lead us into the kind of world it was always created to be. And now, don't miss this, now to a little church that could in Philly, to a little church in Philadelphia and congregations like ours, the holy and true king reassures us that no matter how left or shut out we find ourselves, even though every other door of access or opportunity may be closed to us, slammed in our faces, even though we may perceive ourselves on the outside looking in in terms of every measure of worldly power, strength, and success, the only door that matters has been opened for us. Our salvation our transformation, our opportunities in Christ, and no one can shut or reverse what Jesus has opened for us. Because Christ alone has the keys. Going all the way back to the very first image we get of Jesus in the book of Revelation, do you remember? That Jesus has alone the keys, the very keys of death and hell. Nothing can turn back or close off the forgiveness, the victory, the empowerment that Christ has opened for us all. To we who follow Jesus and yet are ridiculed, or perhaps even worry that we have very little power, very little influence, or maybe very little ability, Christ reminds us here that his grace is sufficient strength for us that his power is made perfect in our weakness, that God shall supply all our needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now, some of you I know are reading this very, very carefully, and it's important to highlight that moment when Jesus promises the church in Philly to keep them from the hour of trial that's going to come upon the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. That time we're living in now, this is not a promise of exemption. This is not Jesus promising that they won't face, we won't face any difficulties or trouble. No, as we've heard before and we will hear again, it is the promise of Christ being with us every step of the way. Of not abandoning or neglecting us, but rather upholding and carrying us through to the other side. And the certainty of this is declared in what Jesus promises next when he says that he will make us pillars in the temple of God. Pillars in the temple of God. And as always, you've learned this by now, Jesus in offering comfort to these churches, and right now the church in Philadelphia, he never does it through random imagery. Jesus isn't just picking some image out of nowhere. When he says, I am going to make you pillars in the temple of God, First and foremost, pillars back in the day are a mean, as a means of strength and support for a building were symbols back in the day of strong and secure leadership. Interestingly, after the devastating quake in Philadelphia in AD 17, the only things left standing, by the way, in Philadelphia were the pillars. The pillars of those pagan temples. And the, against that backdrop, picture it, against that backdrop of a citizenry in Philadelphia that had to flee their city and live in the countryside because of the insecurity and instability of their homeland, against that backdrop, Jesus reinforces his promise of stability and permanence. 
that nothing will separate them from his love and grace. Those who follow Jesus will stand secure in the promises of the kingdom of God. But let's really appreciate the fullness of this image. There's more here. This image of becoming pillars in the temple of the Lord. Jesus' promise that we will never be shaken or brought down is not just for our own comfort and security. To be made by the grace of God pillars is to understand we are being crafted to support and enlarge the house of God. In other words, entering through the door of salvation in Christ leads to walking through the door of opportunity for serving others in the name of Jesus for the sake of building the kingdom of God. Beloved, Jesus moves us out of the instability and insecurity of this fractured world, a world that continues to suffer from the tremors and aftershocks of sin. He moves us out of that insecurity and instability so that we will become the building blocks, the pillars of a new creation. So that we will testify to the truth and life of Jesus so that we together incredibly as the church, as the body of Christ, will support the weight of God's glory. We, seemingly without power or strength, will become, by the grace of God, pillars that uphold the body of Christ. We will become the means of support to each other in Jesus' name that even the mighty Samson could not break. Jesus goes on to add that part of being our being remade, repurposed into pillars, tangible signs of God's firm and secure presence and promises. Part of that promise is that he will write names upon us. We've heard that before, Jesus talking about writing names upon us. And, and this whole idea of writing names upon us really makes sense if we think about it. I mean... Most of us, when we buy something new, we put our name on it, right? When we buy something new, we put our name on it to identify to anyone else that it belongs to us. Even when we purchase things digitally these days, in a sense, we're putting our name on it in that we're attaching ourselves to the possession of that item. And likewise, Jesus is claiming, in claiming to possess us body, mind, and soul, and in the spirit of making us new, writes his name on us. Christ identifies to anyone else that we belong to him and that he belongs to us. And as he breaks it down, he does it in three ways. The first name that Jesus etches on our hearts is the name of God. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That name was branded upon us from the moment of our baptism into the life of the Father, the work of the Son, and the power of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus also describes a second name being inscribed upon us, the name of where our true citizenship is found, in the city of God, the new Jerusalem. This world as it is, is not our home, but this world as it is being changed into a new creation, a new heaven and a new earth, the kingdom of God, that is where our place of residence is and always shall be. And finally, Jesus promises to engrave his name upon us. His name. His name as the true and faithful witness. 
His name as the light of the world that the darkness cannot overcome. His name as the one who forgives and sets people free. His name as the one who is victorious and everlasting. Beloved, to bear the name of Jesus means that what is said of Christ, remarkably, amazingly, astoundingly, is also said of us. To keep rather than to deny the name of Jesus, is to reflect Christ to others so that when they look at us, they clearly see Jesus. They clearly see Jesus both at work in us and lovingly and encouragingly, encouragingly serving the world through us. It's a great letter, man. I know we've had some hard ones these last couple weeks. You guys have told me, when are we done with this? But you gotta love today's letter. You gotta. This is, this is the letter we've been waiting for because as we digest this encouraging letter to a church of a, no apparent significance or influence, a church whose witness isn't performative, a church who isn't perfect, a church who isn't even powerful in the eyes of the world, we need to have ears to hear that this is exactly the kind of church we are called to be. A community that single-mindedly and wholeheartedly is in Christ. A people who are uncompromising in finding and declaring that our faith, our love, our hope are forever found in Jesus alone. To those with little power, to all those with little strength, to all our youth who perceive themselves to just be too young, and to all our elderly who've convinced themselves that they're just too old, and to everyone in between who dares to confront their vulnerability, their weakness, their powerlessness, their inadequacy, rest easy, be comforted, for you are exactly where Jesus wants you to be. We are right where Christ can finally do some work, both in and through us. For this is the moment, the state, when we can finally see it. We can finally walk through the door that Jesus has opened for us. The door that invites us to believe that invites us to belong, that invites us to become. The door that promises to forgive and to save us once and for all. The door that beckons us to exit the life that we've known, a life of uncertainty and insecurity, and to enter into a life of promise and potential that is more than we could have ever imagined or hoped for. The door that can never be barred or closed or shut to us by anything or anyone in all creation. The door of welcome. The door of finally coming home. The door of discovering the power and glory of God in Christ that we get to point and lead others toward and eventually through. Jesus stands at this door, beloved, calling, knocking, inviting, welcoming, beckoning us to come through. Let us, 
led us together without fear or worry, without distraction or hesitation, daily enter in. Because this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Thank you.